So uh, the Japanese courts have convicted him of stealing $3 million of customer funds where he was using the customer accounts to pay his bills. Like he wanted new furniture in his house. He would use customer accounts to buy furniture um, and wire money out to himself. Not salary. He was just using all of the Mt. Gox customer funds as his personal piggy bank. And that's what the Japanese courts convicted him of. He's been convicted. Today is his sentencing hearing. And so he stole $3 million. And what the courts published is they say to buy furniture and personal things. And they also said lots of prostitutes. Good morning, everybody. My name is Gray Jabesi, and this is another episode of the Gray Ave Podcast. I don't know what time it is, wherever you are, but I just woke up and I thought this should be the first thing that I do today because I'm really excited about it. Gray Avenue Podcast is Africa's number one technology and business podcast. So if you haven't been listening to the Gray Ave, man, you've been missing out. So all you can do is go on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or iTunes in SoundCloud and all other podcasting platforms, find the Gray AVE podcast and then you'll be able to subscribe and get notified whenever I post a new episode. And today I have just as another exciting guest, this is actually one of my favorite episodes. Not because I learned a lot, but because I'm also a big fan of the guest for today. And his name is Brock Pierce, and a lot of you guys are already familiar with him, but I'm just going to read a little bit of the Wikipedia summary to give you guys an overview of what Brock is all about. He's a big shark, Uh, but let's go. So Brock Pierce is an American entrepreneur known for his work in the cryptocurrency industry. As a child actor, he was in Disney films The Mighty Ducks in 92 and D2 The Mighty Ducks 94 and first kid in 1996 and it's about to get interesting so Brock actually retired from acting when he was 17 Uh, so this guy's an um, overachiever as you can see he was a child actor meaning that he started acting when he was young so according to Wikipedia here they say Pierce was born in Minnesota and appeared in commercials as a toddler his first major role was playing a young Gordon Bombay in the Mighty Ducks that was in 1992. Pierce reprised the role in D2, The Mighty Ducks. He starred as Luke Devport in First Kid in 1996. Pierce has small roles in Little Big League, 1994, Ripper Man, 1995. Sorry, it's Ripper Man, not Ripper Man. Ripper Man in 1995, Problem Child 3, Junior in Love, 1995, Three Wishes, 1995, and Earth minus zero in 1986 and the ride in 97 and he retired at 17 like I said from from acting and then he started his first company digital entertainment network so Pierce retired from acting at age 17 and joined as a minor partner with Mark Collins Rector and Chad Shockley in establishing digital entertainment network which succeeded in raising $88 million in venture capital. DEN's goal was to deliver organic episodic video content over the internet aimed at niche audiences. So that was a hell of a a business there. In 2013, Pierce joined brothers Bart and Bradford Stevens in founding venture capital firm Blockchain Capital, BCC, which was reported to have raised $85 million in venture capital funds by October 2017. He described as its managing partner, Pierce announced a $50 million initial coin offering ICO by BCC in February 2017. On its launch in June 2017, the currency was named EOS and marketed through a new vehicle called Block One, of which Brock Pierce was variously described as the co-founder, head, minority partner, and advisor. So, you know, Brock has been around the blocks for a very long time. So I don't want to really waste too much of your guy, uh, too much of your time here. If you want, you can go there and, you know, Google him and find out more about himself. Uh, at the same time, 
there is talks about how he got started in this episode so we talk about his childhood his, his beginnings his acting and his business uh you know how he has managed to uh, to become the man that he is over the years because he has transitioned through multiple industries and to give it out there he has actually contributed a lot to the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry you know he founded tether which is a stable coin that is massively used over i think two billion dollars in uh, transaction volumes per day so that's quite huge and eos of course which a lot of you guys are probably familiar with and also it's very important to note that you can watch this interview on video so if you go on my youtube channel hardcore crypto uh, and search broke ps there you should be able you should be able to find uh, this interview in full on video the link will also be in the description of this episode on my website greatjbc.com if that's where you're accessing this episode so uh, stay awesome and enjoy my conversation with Brock Pierce. I mean, there are so many questions here. I was looking at a group where I posted that I'm going to have a podcast with you and the guys are like, okay. And one of the questions here, it says, uh, considering that crypto is dead, uh, what are the chances of Brock getting back to acting? Crypto is most certainly not dead. <laughs> um, if anything, I think um, when I've, I've been publicly stay, I mean, I've been asked for years and years, like, what do I think the crypto prices are going to be? How do I think crypto, you know, I'm, I'm always asked to make predictions and I never do because I don't know. Um, I'm very confident that crypto will recover in most cases. I think that the future is bright, but I don't know what, you know, tomorrow is going to hold. I don't know what next week is going to be like um, unless there's a specific event. And I've, uh, gone out and I made it very clear that I think crypto winter is over in this case. So this is rare for me to make a statement, but uh, I think crypto winter is over. I've been seeing groundhogs everywhere. Spring came early this year. And the, the data point that um, most of the industry has missed because they don't understand the significance of it because they don't have my background or the background of one of the people to understand what this statement is. There's an organization called Cambridge Associates. They came out with a report about three to four weeks ago talking about how family offices should have 30 basis points or big pensions, big endowments, big insurance companies should have 30 basis points of their portfolio allocated to cryptocurrency or blockchain. Wow, that is a very big statement. Cambridge Associates is the closest thing to the word of God. To, to an institution. So if you're a pension, if you're Harvard University or you're an endowment or, you know, excuse me, if you're like a, an endowment like Harvard or a major insurance company or any of these organizations that sit on trillions of dollars of wealth, they basically all listen to Cambridge, tell them how they should allocate their assets. And okay. so that it, these organizations move slow, like it's only been three weeks, but that statement from Cambridge Associates will probably result in something like $300 billion being invested into crypto. It's that big a deal. Awesome. So, you know, for, so for Which say, 2020 is going to be a bull year in my opinion. Okay. Everyone is looking forward to that. I mean, 2017 was, uh, 2018 was well, crazy. 2017 was good, but we, this is how it works. We get some good years. We get some bad years. Um, yeah. fortunately this year is going to end well. Um, you know, I think it's, I, I think that, uh, things are going to be pretty exciting come this summer, come this fall, uh, and 2020 so, is going to be another full year again. So the, the, the question also was acting, I think. So crypto is not dead. Uh, crypto, uh, winter is over. Spring has come early and I couldn't be more excited about, you know, the summer and fall ahead. Um, and will I be acting again? I'm still an actor. You know, I mean, when was the last you, time where you acted? You can't take the actor out of me. Um, I just stopped um, performing other people's scripts. You know, I write my own scripts, and it tends to be primarily improv. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so, one would ask also, you know, with the background that you have, um, for a lot of us, basically, we make the reference that okay, Brock was an actor, and now he's you know, one of the most important people in the blockchain space. How did you get involved with blockchain to begin with, to the, up to this point? Well, I, um, 
I started working in you know, tech startups in 1996, 1997. So I was, uh, I transitioned from acting to entrepreneurship, you know, as a teenager back in the 90s during the internet 1.0. And then I migrated in 1999, 2000, 2001 to digital currency. And I became, uh, uh, I was a market maker for in-game currencies for like World of Warcraft. I would buy and sell all the gold and Final Fantasy, the Gill, and EverQuest, the Platinum, Second Life, the Linden Dollars. And so I built up a big operation all over the world, making markets and running secondary markets and exchanges for digital currencies and games. Um, and that turned out to be a fairly big industry. I helped build a supply chain of 400,000 people in China that would play games like World of Warcraft to mine digital currency that I would then sell all over the world, uh, rolled up exchanges and payment systems. We were PayPal's largest merchant for years. We were Google's largest advertiser for a little while. Uh, we launched Alipay in China. We had over 90% market share in South Korea. So I'd been you know, playing in the uh, game currency sort of industry in a big way uh, prior to Bitcoin. Um, and so that's what led me ultimately to this space. And at that point, I suppose, did, did you thought of digital currencies to be as this big one day? Oh, I think the better question is, why did you have to jump from acting uh, to, to digital currencies? Didn't, didn't you ever thought of yourself as being uh, one of the largest? Wasn't your dream to become one of the most flamboyant Hollywood actors instead? Well, I mean, I, I, in, the, in the world of acting, I had become a movie star. I was starring in movies. Um, and as a child actor, I had become about as successful as one can be. Sure, if I had been Macaulay Culkin, um, I would have been more successful. But, you know, I was in that category. I was a star when I was being offered starring roles in films. I kind of, uh, you know, if, 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 if life were a video game and I chose to play the you know, the, the acting um, levels, I kind of beat that game. So, you know, I went out to play another one. All right, but, but then, so, I so, liked acting because I, I, I didn't feel like acting was my calling in life. Like, I didn't right. wake up a day going, I'm an actor and I'm excited about this, you know, next mountain I can climb or stage I can perform on. Uh, I was more interested in other things. And so, entrepreneurship and producing um movies at that point were you know I, I was just looking at other stuff i was acting isn't my dreams were not of being an actor in my future that is a very good point because uh i mean for a lot of people it almost feels like when you're doing something it's always that you know what's going to define you for a very long period of time but also i think it's it's important that you know being successful in one domain quicker helps helps you to kind of explore other things much quicker as well and figuring them out which is exactly what happened to you yeah i know i was very lucky very blessed to have had the level of success that i had as an actor it's very rare lots of people try very few succeed yeah yeah i mean there's a statement by uh, uh, i think it's nicolas talib he says Actors are actors and models are waiters, something like that, because he said by the numbers, most of them are serving coffee in San Diego or something. Only a few actually do acting. So it's actually a true statement. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, well, the number of people that, that want every job, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's thousands of people for every job, you know, that exists. So the odds of, you know, getting work is very low. <laughs> Very yeah. Cool. So when you came onto Bitcoin, um, I mean, before before you thought of it as an uh, as an, uh, being a business person, what you could do with it, what was your overview and how it might end, and how long did it take you to to, to be convinced enough that you know this might actually be the currency of the future? Well, I've I've been in digital currencies since you know 1999, and I had been very active in building you know, sort of these economic systems. And so in 2004 and five and six and seven and 2008, people would come to me constantly with their ideas of building new digital currencies, of building community currencies, of building loyalty currencies, 
And so none of this was really new to me. And uh, so I'd been following Bitcoin closely since very early on. And it wasn't until about 2012 when I made the decision to uh, focus all of my energy in this area. And so I went full time into, into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain and in 2012. And it wasn't that I hadn't been following it before then. It was that I've learned a little bit about this concept of market timing. And I saw sort of a critical mass of activity and people, you know, showing up and companies and ideas forming. It felt like, you know, it felt like that was the time because I, the, the, the big question I had when looking at Bitcoin early on is that Bitcoin or something like it was the future. The question is, was the future now or 25 years from now? And in 2012, I made the decision that, all right, this is happening. This is going to work. <laughs> uh, and once I came to the conclusion it was happening and it was going to work, there's nothing else I could possibly do with my time. Awesome. Uh, seems like so far so good. And one of the stories that's out there right now that's trending in the cryptocurrency uh, domain is that is uh, Mt. Gox. You came out saying that, you know, with Gox Rising as a project, that you say you claim that, you know, reviving Mt. Gox is a very important thing to the entire community. And if it has to come back, it has to come back strongly to become at least the best exchange in the, in the space. But for a lot, of, a lot of people who are new to cryptocurrencies, who maybe heard of uh, Mt. Gox, but they don't have enough context within it, uh, and where you come in, could you just share a little bit of history of what Mt. Gox was and what's happening right now? Yeah, Mt. Gox was um, a website created in 2007 to buy and sell Magic the Gathering online cards, you know, collectible card game. It pivoted to Bitcoin in 2010, and it was given to uh, a French um, technology kind of um, person by the name of Mark Carpellis, I think in early 2011. And Mark then operated that business for a couple of years, and it grew and it grew and it grew, and Mt. Gox was the most important crypto company in the world. It was the most important Bitcoin company in the world. Um, Mt. Gox was responsible for the rise, you know, the big early rises of Bitcoin. It was the primary exchange. It was the only way that most people bought their Bitcoin early on. It was that or you mined them yourself. And so Mt. Gox was, I mean, the most important Bitcoin company there had ever been uh, during its time and bigger than anything could ever be, could possibly get to today. And so I went to go buy Mt. Gox in 2012 and again in 2013 and uh, to form a joint venture for China. And I did a bunch of stuff around Mt. Gox in the early days. And then in early 2014, Mt. Gox one day announced that they lost all the Bitcoin. And they, had a million, they were supposed to have about a million Bitcoin in the accounts. And they said, sorry, it's all gone. Kind of like Quadriga uh, that we so far had this year. And so the whole industry is like, it's all gone? How is that possible? Um, and it became a giant nightmare. I called up Mark Carpellis. I said, hey, Mark, I'd like to buy Mt. Gox. And he goes, are you not watching the news? I said, that's why I'm calling. And he goes, and you're still interested? I said, well, this is going to really harm Bitcoin. This is going to set us back years. Someone has to come in here and try and clean this up and you clearly are not able to do that And he's like really you'll help. I said, yeah Let me come and help clean this up Because I didn't know what to do All I knew is that Mount Gox imploding and all the money going, you know missing would be very bad for our overall industry And so the first day Mount Gox collapsed I volunteered To come in and take over the business and try and clean up the mess to the best of my ability and we went ahead and did that and spent a ton of money and worked on that for a while. Um, yeah, so uh, I went in and tried to help fix that to the best of my abilities. The Japanese courts decided not to rehabilitate it, which is what I had been proposing. 
and instead they made the decision to liquidate it. Liquidations in Japan take five to 20 years on average. There wasn't much to do for a few years. Um, and so obviously went back to doing other things and continued to monitor Mt. Gox and tried to be helpful along the way when possible. Late last year, the bankruptcy trustee decided to rehabilitate the company, which was our original idea. We created a civil rehabilitation plan in early 2014 and filed it. I mean, we were the only, we were the group that basically said civil rehabilitation was the best outcome for Mt. Gox. Sorry, and just elaborate what, what uh, civil re rehabilitation is. The difference is liquidation is to chop up the business, sell everything and, uh, and give creditors whatever, some of whatever is left. Uh, rehabilitation is to try and do what is best with the assets. Um, you know, what's the best thing you can do? And that's rehabilitation. Try to, try to rehabilitate the business versus, you know, drain it of all of its blood. Mt. Gox has gone through the process that, you know, we'd always proposed. Um, we're doing our best to make sure that that process goes smoothly. And something big happened that I've left out in there. Um, after we had gotten involved in trying to help Mark clean up the business, Mark found, I'm not sure it was Mark, but uh, the team found 200,000 missing Bitcoin. You know, they were going through all the drawers and going through all the computers and going through all the USB sticks. And Mt. Gox had lost 200,000 Bitcoin that was later found. And so that 200,000 Bitcoin, you know, now has appreciated quite a bit. And so the Mt. Gox estate has 630 million US dollars and about 140,000 Bitcoin left. And so um, we want to make sure that all of that money 100% of that money goes to the creditors that lost money at Mt. Gox. There's a company called CoinLab that is suing and asking for 16 billion, meaning they want to take everything. CoinLab thinks creditors should get zero and they deserve everything. And Mark Carpellis has a claim filed with the bankruptcy trustee through his company to Bain for 82,000 bitcoins. So he's asking for you know more than half of all the bitcoin. We don't think Mark should get anything. And we don't think that CoinLab should get anything. Why, why so, would CoinLab ask for, for that amount of money? What, how, where is the involvement? So CoinLab signed a contract with Mt. Gox in 2012 to try and be their joint venture partner for the United States. In the contract, they were obligated to abide by you know, US laws and to get their money transmitter licenses and to do all the things to be you know, compliant with US law. Mt. Gox was going to let CoinLab have 90% of the revenue because Mt. Gox knew that there was no way they could meet all of the compliance requirements in the United States quickly. And CoinLab promised, oh yeah, no, we've been working on this for years. We have all the licenses. We've got all that. We can do this compliantly. And so Mt. Gox said, wow, that's impressive. We're willing to give you 90% of the revenue if you can compliantly operate in the United States. And CoinLab was like, yep, we know how to do that. We know what we're doing. And so they signed a contract. A couple months later, CoinLab had done nothing. A couple months later, CoinLab had spent zero money, and we now have learned this through discovery, did nothing to be compliant, did absolutely nothing, and completely were in breach of contract. And because they failed to perform and to live up to the agreement that they made, and actually hadn't done anything to be compliant, Mt. Gox had no choice but to terminate the contract for breach. CoinLab then embezzled and stole $5 million of Mt. Gox customer funds. And then when Mt. Gox filed for bankruptcy, CoinLab sued them for $70 million. And they said, well, had you not canceled our contract, which we were in breach of and we stole a bunch of money, we think we would have made $70 million on this deal which is kind of crazy that they would sue after they were the party in the wrong. But yeah. fast forward, in the last, two months ago, CoinLab decided to update their claim. And they originally, in 2014, sued for 70 million. And a couple months ago, they just updated it and said it's now 16 billion. So they never did anything. They were in breach of their contract. They failed to do what they were supposed to do, never spent any money, and they stole money. Now they think they're owed 16 billion. Now. Where they come up with that number is kind of crazy. I have to assume 
that they're saying Coinbase raised money at eight billion. And so they're saying Coinbase is worth eight billion. And mm -hmm. so if we had the Mt. Gox deal and Mt. Gox had never gone bankrupt and everything stayed the same and Mt. Gox dominated the world and we hadn't breached our agreement and we hadn't stolen the money and we had executed perfectly and everything worked out magically, we would be worth twice what Coinbase is worth. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the craziest claim I've ever heard of. I mean, if you're going to be so crazy to say that we should be worth twice what Coinbase is worth when we did absolutely nothing and stole money, they might as well say they're worth what Facebook is worth and Google and Apple, right? Combined issue. They might as well just sue for a trillion dollars at that point. At, at least, you know, they could claim they made the largest lawsuit there's ever been. <laughs> um, they might have gotten a bunch of news for that because, I mean, it, it, they're equally as crazy. You know, they might as well say they're suing for 10 trillion. I mean, it's, you did nothing. How in the world do you think you're owed $16 billion? It's utterly insane. Yeah, it sounds insane to me. And one of the things that have, um, I've been following this story for a while. One of the things that have been popping up is, especially from Capelli's side, he says, I mean, what was your, how was the agreement between you and him in terms of how you bought Montgox? Because you, 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 you claim that you own most of it, right? No, no. Um, this has been a focus of his, which hasn't been a focus of mine. I've made it very clear that I want creditors to get everything. I don't care who owns Mt. Gox as long as creditors get everything. I've said that I have a claim. Jed McCaleb agrees that I own all the founder shares. And I signed an agreement to buy the 88% of the shares from Mark Carpellis, a binding agreement which he breached but I don't own those shares today. Um, I would have to fight for those shares. So I clearly do not own Mt. Gox today. Do I have a claim? Sure. Uh, there's only two shareholders, Mark Carpellis and Jed McCaleb. Jed McCaleb, who created the founder of Mt. Gox, yeah. who also founded Ripple and also founded Stellar, says, yeah, Brock owns all my shares. That's not disputed by anyone. He said that publicly. How, how many shares are those? Mark, Mark Carpellis, I signed an agreement binding to buy his 88% before I went and spent all the money to try and clean up his mess. And then he breached that contract and failed to do what he was supposed to do to conclude the sale. Um, but no, I don't own his shares today. I have a claim to his shares, but it doesn't even matter. I don't want to own Mt. Gox. I want creditors to get 100% of the money. I'm only interested in the domain name and the brand because I want to relaunch Mt. Gox and I want to protect creditors from Mark Carpellis. He's got a claim filed with the trustee, with the bankruptcy courts today, demanding 82,000 Bitcoin. He wants more than half the Bitcoin for himself. That is, that's with the courts filed today, fact. Wow, that is... That's, that's, why I think, that's why I think he cares so much about that statement. When I said, I have a claim, that, I, that was just a comment. It wasn't a big part of the story. What I care about doing is creditors getting everything and relaunching the exchange and changing the narrative. But somehow, Mark Carpellis has made my comment about, I have a claim to the ownership. Everyone is, Mark Carpellis and his friends have all focused on that statement. And I have to assume the only reason they care so much is it affects his 82,000 Bitcoins. If I own that equity, then Mark doesn't get those 82,000 Bitcoins. Correct. And so that's why I think that's become such a big debate. I don't want anything. I don't want Mark to get anything. I want creditors to get 100 cents on the dollar. And I want to relaunch the exchange. So it doesn't actually matter who owns it. Did you win? You I know Mark cares because Mark wants those 82,000 Bitcoin. That's why he cares so much, in my yeah. opinion. But you went to see him. I wonder what that conversation was like between you guys. In I've Japan. been kind. I mean, tomorrow is today in Japan time is his sentencing hearing. Uh, he might be going to prison today for 10 years. Um, so, uh, well, he, for the, the charge that they're sentencing him for was embezzlement. So uh, the Japanese courts have convicted him of stealing $3 million of customer funds where he was using the customer accounts to pay his bills. Like he wanted new furniture in his house. He would use customer accounts to buy furniture um, and wire money out to himself. Not salary. He was just using all of the Mt. Gox customer funds as his personal piggy bank. And that's what the Japanese courts convicted him of. He's been convicted. Today is his sentencing hearing. 
And so he stole $3 million. And what the courts published is they say to buy furniture and personal things. And they also said lots of prostitutes. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, he's going to be sentenced to up to 10 years in prison today. So I don't really want to, uh, uh, I mean, I have some sympathy for the poor guy. Uh, he already did a year in prison. He just got out. Now he's about to go back for another 10. And they might then, who knows what they're going to charge him with next. I mean, he might be spending the rest of his life in prison for what happened here. Right. So, I mean, it seems like uh, and back in the day, in those days, I mean, it's not even far back, but it seems like there was a lot of mismanagement or the way the companies uh, in the blockchain space were a little bit crazier than they are now. Even though we see things like what happened to Quadriga as well, it's a little crazy that, you know, we can have that situation now. It's almost like there are people that haven't learned anything from Mangox. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's horrible that it's like a broken record and this song keeps playing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, this is, uh, something's got to change. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's time for some change. So, uh, personally, I, I ask this question to everyone I've interviewed here, from uh, Roger Veer, um, David Orban. I, I think I should ask you this question as well. So, if you, right now, custody is a, very serious thing in crypto. We say that we own our own private keys, you know, your key, your key is your money, which is great. But there haven't been a solution in terms of what happens when some, the, the token holder dies. And, you know, all these protocols that are coming out, I don't think that any of them has been focused on that at all, in which we can already estimate by, uh, at this point that there's a lot of Bitcoins or a lot of tokens that have just been lost. Money value lost for nothing because the token holder passed away. And I, I haven't been following uh, with the Quadriga stuff at this point. I don't know exactly what was the truth on that. But what, what is your solution to that problem? What have you done personally to make sure that you, know, you have everything in order? Well, first of all, you, you need to put in place infrastructure to write a will. You know, make sure you have your last will and testament written. Uh, and you can store those private keys or better yet, multi-sig sort of infrastructure across multiple parties. You know, you can leave some of that information with a lawyer in a safe that's enclosed in a document and just make sure you have instructions for when you die or how those coins can be recovered if you care about your loved ones, you know, having access to those things. And if you're a professional and you run a business, you know, you have to make sure that you have a plan in place that God forbid something happens to you that your customers are taken care of. If it's your own personal money and you want to mismanage it and lose it, that's your prerogative. If you are holding assets in custody for other people, you know, you have a responsibility to make sure that that's managed correctly. And, but I recommend doing that for yourself personally too. Write your last will and testament and make sure that you have clear instructions you know, make sure you have clear instructions so that those coins and those funds are not lost. Um, and one of the things that is really important to talk about is the uh, issue with uh, Tether. So I don't know how involved you are with Tether uh, from what point, but a lot of people uh, sent me some questions saying, okay, what do you think of Tether? You know, there's not enough transparency. And from someone who believes in crypto like yourself, what are you doing to make sure that there's at least enough transparency to avoid another collapse because there's fears that if Tether happens to, you know, to crash at one point, it's going to affect the cryptocurrency market by a huge margin, perhaps worse than Matt Cox. That's what a lot of people are saying. So I don't know what are, what are your thoughts on Tether? Um, I mean, I think Tether is great. Um, so Tether was my idea. Uh, I was one of the founders. Uh, and I pulled the team together um, and the resources to to build and launch Tether. Um, you know, I wasn't very involved. Following, you know, I, I start lots of things, you know. I've started dozens and dozens of companies. So, um, you know, I normally have ideas and I pull management teams together and I pull resources together and then let them build and go. In the case of Tether, uh, we sold the business early on. And so I've had no formal involvement 
with the company since somewhere between 2015 and 2016. I'd have to check the dates. But I haven't been involved for years. I had no idea that you actually started it. It was your idea. I thought you were just a board member or something. No. Uh, uh, at the time, everybody thought I was crazy. You know, because I, I would pitch all my friends in crypto. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to put the US dollar on the blockchain. Here's why. And everyone's like, that's a horrible idea. I said, I think it's actually kind of important. We need the ability to move you know, a stable currency from exchange to exchange. And I had a whole lot of, you know, ideas as to where that would go. But um, no, I think Tether's great. Um, I think Tether has been, uh, uh, well, I mean, it, it's trading volume is on par with Bitcoin. It exceeds Bitcoin often these days as the most traded coin. It's doing about $3 trillion a year, three and a half trillion dollars a year of transactional volume right now. That's kind of crazy numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done lots of billions in my life. I've never done trillions. So Tether, you know, Tether is, you know, um, uh, a business I started that's doing trillion dollars of, you know, its total transaction volume is probably close to exceeding 10 trillion. You know, I mean, it's like we're, these are big numbers. Um, so so there's and, a question. Very, very important role in the industry. I know Tether gets a very bad rap, but I know quite a bit about the business. I have no formal role, so I don't have information rights. I can't go demand things, but I know a lot about the business as, you know, as its creator. Um, I've never seen anything that has given me any reason to believe they don't have the money. That doesn't mean they don't. I'm not saying they do, but I'm pretty sure they do. <laughs> I have no reason to believe otherwise. And it looks like there's about five accounts on uh, Twitter that have been paid by someone. I just got the identities of some of them finally. And what they've been doing is they've been creating all this sort of Tether FUD. So Bitfinex is affiliated with Tether. And, so, and Bitfinex was the number one exchange in the world when Tether started being given a very hard time. And so people were going, oh, Tether, 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 oh, Bitfinex bad, and causing Bitfinex to lose customers. So my guess is that most of that FUD has been created by a competitive exchange paying people to create controversy. Uh, that's my opinion. And now that I've got the identities of some of these people, I might have evidence soon as to who did it. I, I'm, I might sue some people because uh, I'm curious. Not because not I want anything, um, but uh, Tether has been one of the greatest businesses uh, ever built in crypto, one of the most interesting businesses ever created in the world, and it hasn't done anything wrong, provably wrong yet, to be given such a bad rap by people that are literally paid to create and spread lies and misinformation. I'm not saying Tether is perfect. Clearly, they could be more transparent. Clearly, I'd love to see them audited. But how many Bitcoin exchanges are audited? Mm -hmm. Do you know? No, like it's basically none of them. And so this is the problem that people have is I would like to see Tether audited. It's hard. If you're a Bitcoin exchange, if you're Tether, if you're any business in crypto at scale and you go to an auditor and you say, please audit me, the auditors say no. And you're like, what do you mean? I want to pay you for an audit. The auditors are like, no, there's too much risk associated with auditing a crypto company. Do you not remember Arthur Anderson? And when Arthur Anderson, the biggest, one of the biggest auditors in the world, went out of business because they audited Enron, mm -hmm. you know, they're like, we don't even understand how the taxes work and the laws work and this new thing called crypto. If you're willing to give us $50 million, we'll audit you. And everyone's like, we can't afford that. And they go, well, sorry, there's too much risk. We don't, you don't get to hire us like a normal auditor. And so the problem is crypto companies have a very hard time being audited. And Tether gets a very bad rap for not having been able to get an audit, but that's because the auditors refuse to work with them, just like they refuse to work with every exchange. So what did Tether do? They went and hired a law firm that had the former head of the FBI as their manager, and this law firm went in and did an audit of the books and said, yeah, they have the money. Here, look, because a law firm is not an auditor, but lawyers are smart enough. They can say, how much Tether is there? How many dollars are there? Does the bank account show? Yep, yep, they match. The law firm said with the head of the FBI sponsoring it, yes, Tether has the money. 
because they so, couldn't get a financial auditor to do it. So basically, at this point, we have to work with trust um, when it comes to Tether. Hopefully in the future, a lot less. I mean, I, I, I hope Tether gets replaced by something better. Um, you know, I hope we end up with all on-chain systems. Um, but Tether has played a very important role. Bitcoin would have never hit 10,000 uh, without something like Tether. Tether is, you know, and it doesn't need to be Tether. We needed stable coins. I, I, it doesn't need to be Tether, any stable coin. The market needed stable coins. Stable coins provide a very important function for the industry. And I'm glad I got to, uh, to create that category. And I'm glad the one that I started is still the most successful, but I don't care. You know, if someone else can come along and do it better and people prefer it, go there. Um, I might even create another one. You never know. <laughs> How would you do it now? Um, gold back. Well, actually, what do you think of the gold backed currencies, uh, stable coins? I think that uh, in the future, I think gold, uh, uh, tokenized gold is great. I mean, we had e gold and all sorts of ideas back before Bitcoin that were very interesting. Um, and I think gold, I'm a, I'm a fan of gold. I think Bitcoin is just gold 2.0. Right. But I mean, that's what I think of Bitcoin. I think of it as gold 2.0, digital gold. Um, but just because digital gold exists doesn't mean that we, there's not a need or demand for physical gold. You know, we're still in the early stages um, of shifting to digital currencies. So I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of gold. Um, I, I'm a big believer in gold. Um, I buy gold. Um, and um, in terms of, yeah, one thing that I wanted to talk about was the... Um, Yes, but I think before we get into that, let's talk about Puerto Rico. It's much more important to me as well. So what, when did you fall in love with Puerto Rico? And when did you decide to actually move there? And I've been following what you're doing there. There was some backlash at, at one point with the residents of Puerto Rico. It seems like now it's changing. But what do you envision as to what you want to do with it? And what's the progress right now? Um, yeah, so I've been, you know, I fell in love with Puerto Rico in my youth. I was going down there a little bit as a teenager. Um, and then uh, I went to Puerto Rico in 2014 to start the first crypto bank. And so I started a bank in Puerto Rico in 2014 called Noble Bank, um, which was the bank that banked Tether and banked Bitfinex, which is where all the conspiracy comes from. Like, it's not a secret. I started Noble Bank. Yes, <laughs> I created the first crypto bank, the biggest crypto bank in the world. I don't, I don't, um, people think that I hide all these things that I create because I don't brag. I, cause I, I don't go on a stage and say, Hey, I'm Brock. And yeah, I started tether and I created the first crypto bank and I did this and I did this and I did this. That's not like how I present myself. Instead, I like talking about ideas. And so I, I went down to Puerto Rico to do that originally. And, um, uh, and I made a decision to move down to Puerto Rico as a result of that process. Um, and I started telling my friends that we should move to Puerto Rico in like 2016. And then in 2017, when the hurricane hit, I said, we should go now. You know, Puerto Rico is, you know, needs some help. Let's let's go do what we can, you know, to be helpful. So when when the planes were flying out and the planes leaving were full, and the planes flying back to Puerto Rico were empty or just filled with people that you know are going into like aid workers, um, you know, we were proudly part of that movement. You know, we were proudly people flying in when the electricity wasn't working, and like you know, we were doing our part to try and help. Um, you know, and. Uh, a bunch of us have moved down there and, you know, we're doing what we can. Yeah, there was a little bit of controversy um, in some of the news, but that was great. Um, you know, I've never really had any problems with any of the people down there. Puerto Rican people are amazing. I love Puerto Rican people. And um, the only time we ever had an issue is when the camera was rolling. <laughs> Literally, the only time anyone ever was like, you know, had an issue with us was only when the camera was rolling. And that's because, you know, 
people want their moments of fame, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay. What people do when there's a camera rolling and what people do when the camera is not rolling are very, very different. I know. I walk around with the with a GoPro usually sometimes, and I get that all the time. When the secret yeah, so camera, the game action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but it was good. Um, I was actually with uh, the journalist who made that Guardian piece, the video that has like a, a couple of um, women very angry. I was with the guy yesterday um, uh, that did that piece, and we were talking about it. And he's like, "I feel so bad." My editors changed it because the the, the people that made that story saw what was really happening, and he's like. The work that you guys are doing, it's, it, it, it's one of the most, it's touched my heart as much as, you know, almost anything I've ever seen. And I, I, I feel so horrible that that piece was modified and presented the work that you're doing. They deleted all the great stuff and this and that, and it didn't, it didn't tell the story as we all wanted it to be made. He goes, I'm, gonna, I'm spending the next two years to make a full movie about it because it's, I, I, I want to see this done right. I'm, and he felt so bad. I'm like, don't worry. It's all good. If you hadn't had that controversy, less people would have seen the video. I mean, that's, we, you know, welcome to Hollywood. You know, we need a little entertainment. You know, we need some yeah, sensationalism. Yeah, yeah. And those, that little argument actually probably made that video be seen 10 times or 20 times more than it would have had, it would have been had it just been a puff piece, you know, showing us doing great work and being helpful. You know, that's not what people want to watch. They want a little Jerry Springer. And so, um, thank you. I'm glad you captured that moment. It spread the word, <laughs> you know, at my expense, but it spread the word. And he's like, you're not angry about it? I'm like, not at all. I think it was good. <laughs> I think it helped. He's like, all right, I because I've been just beating myself up. I felt so horrible that that, you know, became a big part of this story, which is so not what is happening. It's not what I'm witnessing. I'm witnessing something beautiful happening here. Um, so because of time, uh, I'm just going to uh, rush into the, the last questions. So Brock, what do you think when people become wealthy, they become spiritual? When people become super wealthy, from what I've been saying lately, they become very spiritual. I don't know what, what, what is it and at what point uh, did it happen to you that, you know, maybe you have been very spiritual, but now these days you seem, you know, you're a very spiritual person in touch with what's happening in the universe. I'm, I, as I've progressed in age, I've become more and more um, uh, spiritual, but I'm, I'm curious about that statement. As people become wealthy, they become more spiritual. I'm just thinking in my own life experience, I'm not sure... There's a direct correlation, but I'm curious. I'm gonna, I'm, I, I wanna spend some more time pondering that. One thing that does happen when people become wealthy is they're no longer like waking up every day worried about paying the bills, right? They're not trapped in this state of mind where they're always worrying about what do I have to do to survive, right? What do I have to do to survive? What do I have to do to survive? What do I have to do to survive? That trap, um, obviously prevents a lot of people from kind of tapping into their spiritual self and connecting with spirit. Um, so that's one benefit of being wealthy is you, you're, you're freed of that trap. But I've also seen on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, something really bad happen is a lot of people wake up every day going, I want to be wealthy. I want to be wealthy. I want to be wealthy. My goal is to be wealthy because once I'm wealthy, I'll be happy. And they think that what they associate happiness and wealth. And then all of a sudden they wake up one day and they're like, I'm wealthy, <laughs> but I'm not happy. I thought having this money was going to make me happy, but I'm not happy. Oh God, now what? And then I see people just completely lose it because they spent their whole life trying to climb this mountain and to get to this peak. And when they get to this peak, they expected they'd be in the promised land and happiness and joy would be there. And then they're really miserable and the life they've created for themselves because of the compromises they made to get the money have made them miserable people. So uh, I've seen a whole bunch of uh, uh, different things. Yeah. Wealth gives people the freedom to think and to, you know, be more of whoever they're going to be. Um, but I don't think spirituality is 
where everybody ends up that has been blessed with abundance. Uh, I've seen I've seen a lot of wealthy people kill themselves. I mean, it's uh, it, it's it, 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 it's its own challenge, right? Life is always a challenge, and you know we often have this perspective: oh, I wish my life was more like this or more like that. But everything is always going to be a challenge. Life is kind of like a game in that sense. And the question is, uh, not the score, you know, not even the results, but how you play. And the most important lesson that I've learned throughout all of this is it's all about integrity. It's about being true to yourself, you know, not compromising your morals, not compromising your ethics, not, you know, taking those shortcuts at the expense of yourself and your soul. Um, you know, do you think having having uh, a really good amount of wealth allows you to do that much more? Yes and no. I'm not sure wealth. Uh, I'm, I'm, I want to spend some more time contemplating the, the correlation between the two because, you know, you don't need any. I, I think money is like a, is a false god. Mm -hmm. I think it's the most important false god that tricks uh and leads mo more people astray than just about anything else. You know, money shouldn't be our focus. And actually, I find the less you make money your focus, the happier you are. And often the more money you'll have. Uh, th this is a correlation that I, at least I've been seeing more and more of, which is counterintuitive, is that people think, oh, I need to go try and get the money. But money shouldn't be the goal. You should instead be asking yourself, what am I good at? What am I passionate about? What do I love doing? And what does the world need? And when you figure out what you're good at, what you love, and what the world needs, what benefits others, if you make that your focus, you're going to be very happy. And you're going to love what you're doing to a point that you're going to become great. You're going to become great at whatever that is. And when you become great at something, when you become one of the best at something, you normally make lots of money for it because you're so good and you love what you're doing, and you're happy, and even if it takes a long time to make that money, you're doing what you love. The money will follow. Um, I, that's the, the, the main lesson that I've learned where I've seen a direct correlation, is that it's more about doing what you love and what you're good at and what helps others than um, what makes money. Do, do you think, it seems like it has taken you this far for you to realize that, and I wonder if you could have the same perspective back then. I mean, it took me a long time to really come to this realization. I always did what made me happy. I did what I was passionate about. Um, and I didn't always go pursue the thing that would make money. But on occasion, I'd see something, a bright, shiny object that I thought could make me a bunch of money. And I would go work on that thing. And those are the projects that kind of always failed. Or most of the time failed. And I was like, why did I do that? And I ended up losing a lot of money. I ended up spending six months working on something I wasn't passionate about. It didn't bring me joy. I wasn't making the world a better place. And I'm like, oops. And then I go back to doing the thing I love and things work. And, you know, like, and it took me a while to see the connection. I was already starting to kind of walk that path, but blind, right? I was walking blind and feeling and, you know, oh, this is kind of, and it took a while before I'm, I, you know, I had the benefit of hindsight and I look back and I go, ah, and then there was a Japanese term. The Japanese term is, um, uh, ikigai. Ikigai. Yeah. Uh, if you, you can look it up, it's, uh, the, the image is, is really the key thing you want to see. Um, so it's A-K-I-K-I-G-A-I. And I always recommend uh, kind of forgetting the bottom section. But uh, if you look that up, you'll see exactly the symbolism. And so once I saw the Japanese term of Ikigai, and I saw the chart or the Venn diagram of Ikigai, that's when I was like, this all makes sense to me now. I believe in that. And that is what I'm going to recommend to people. That is how... I think most of us should try and live. And if more of us lived with the Ikigai principles, you know, as our path, more of us would be happy. More of us would be successful. We'd probably make more money than if money was our focus. All right, man. I don't want to take too much of your time unless there's something else you want to jump into. Um, no, I think uh, today's, 
that way we should close out today is Pi Day. It's March 14th, um, right. 3.14. Uh, Stephen Hawking's died one year ago today. So I um, uh, want to say uh, uh, we miss you, that wonderful man, and, and the wonderful things that he's you know, left behind for us. Uh, go watch a Stephen Hawking's video, listen to one of his great speeches, learn something from him on this anniversary. If you're not um, familiar with the number pi, you know, go look it up, go, go try and memorize, you know, a couple more numbers so that you can recite it. Um, it's the launch day for sense, you know, so go into your uh, Android phone or your iPhone and download the provably secure messenger sense. It's on EOS. It's a blockchain based messenger. I'm uh, super excited about the prospects for that. Um, and tomorrow is March 15th, which is the Ides of March. Uh, the Ides of March is the day that Ju Julius Caesar was stabbed on the Senate floor. Uh, the Ides of March is a day um, it's important to have paid all your debts. Right. Right. So if, if you owe anyone money and you've forgotten and you've left people hanging, you know, uh, it's a good time to reflect on that and, you know, go pay your debts, either monetary or karmic. You know, it's a, it's a good day to be asking for forgiveness, you know. Uh, and so tomorrow is the Ides of March. And then uh, March 20th, March 20th is the spring equinox, which is uh, the first day of spring. And so I've uh, uh, predicted in the beginning of this that uh, crypto winter is over and spring has come early. Uh, March 20th is the beginning of spring, you know, in uh, yeah. a more traditional sense. And so uh, enjoy that. We've got a, this is an exciting week, um, you know. With very much numbers, hey? Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I, I'm study astrology, numerology, you know, uh, geometry, <laughs> geology, <laughs> geography. Uh, as astrology, do you, do you believe in astrology? Um, I believe you that, that you think uh, the correlations are real. I believe that the sun right. uh, is a very important star. Um, and that star pro provides us with life on this planet. Um, I believe that uh, the other stars and their makeup and the rotations of things uh, clearly uh, and the planets and the moon uh, uh, I think are all uh, important things that we should all study further. Um, uh, this is a, a good day to uh, yeah, look into some Stephen Hawking's um, uh, thoughts on the universe. Specifically, like if I was going to recommend anything right now, I'd, I'd look into like quantum entanglement. Uh, Stephen Hawking's probably has some interesting um, uh, discussions um, on quantum entanglement. Definitely, I'll throw all this in the description of the podcast. So for, for whoever is watching or listening, they'll be able to pick up on that. I love South Africa. Uh, I've, sp I've been to South Africa multiple times. Um, I almost burnt down Cape Town. <laughs> I'll show you some videos of that one day. Because uh, I spin fire, I do like circus performing stuff. Yeah, 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 I'm a magician, a fire performer, a DJ. I do a lot of other things. <laughs> You're doing a lot of things, man. I, uh, yeah, that's life, you know, try and do shit, right? Yeah, Learn yeah, things, yeah. play with things, right. you know, um, I'm a curious mind. Um, um, but yeah, I was playing with fire at one of the really nice houses on the night main street in Cape town. And next thing you know, <laughs> there was a fire, the biggest I've ever seen. <laughs> Oops. Uh, fortunately, the neighborhood didn't get burnt down. We were very close, though. <laughs> right. Where were you staying? The, in Camps Bay? Yeah. Ah. I almost burnt down all of Camps Bay. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a tremendous oh. amount of real estate. For the, the, the flames were 40 or 50 feet high. I mean, we're not oh, talking wow. like a little fire. I mean, like, holy shit. <laughs> so you managed to pull it off before it went worse, like the firefighters? We got it out before the helicopters. They all flew in, but we got it out. Well, there was fortunately no wind that day. Had there been any wind, Camps Bay would probably be gone. And, and, and by the way, the party that this happened at, because uh, there's Burning Man, Africa. It's in oh, South Africa. Yeah. Africa so burned. That, yeah, Africa burned. 
And so we built a big camp at Africa Burn that year. This is a few years ago. And the party that we were doing where this happened was the pre-party for Africa Burn. So the next, we literally left from that party to the burn. And so uh, I, we kicked off the Africa Burn party by almost burning down Camp Bay, <laughs> unfortunately not. I mean, the words are colorated. Burning, burn the house, burning Africa Burn. <laughs> well, the, the main lesson in life is to burn the ego. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, you know, the most important life lesson is our jobs is to try and burn our egos. Mm, very difficult, eh? Our, our ego, our ego is not our amigo. Our ego is, you know, that thing that fucks us up in life. And, you know, the goal is to keep burning that away. Keep burning that self away and be more and more of a servant to others. Yeah, that's very difficult, eh? Very, very difficult. It, you, you work on it your whole life <laughs> and you yeah. just keep working on it. But uh, thank you for your time. Um, awesome. uh, and I look forward to our next communication. Awesome. Thanks, bro. Well. Cheers. Hello once again. And that was the end of our conversation. And just before you go, just want to communicate a few things with you uh, quickly. If you have uh enjoyed any of the podcasts or this specific podcast episode i would appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family through your social media twitter facebook etc etc as well as write me a five-star review on itunes or apple podcast app that would be fantastic it helps me flourish and sustain this podcast as well uh, we also on other platforms like soundcloud uh, stitcher radio um and all other major podcast platforms so whichever way you're listening to it i would appreciate it if you leave me a review you can also subscribe to the graph podcast through my website graejabesi.com g-r-e-y-j-a-b-e-s-i.com there you also find some of the blogs that i'm writing sometimes and you get notified as soon as the new episode has been published until next time enjoy and be productive thank you